Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Jolt Naj. Based in Berlin, Jolt is a career coach and a software engineer. He is currently head of front-end development at Sociomantic Labs, a display advertising company working heavily with sophisticated data science technology and other methods for creating more effective advertising. You can read Jolt's work on devcareermastery.com and joltnaj.eu, and you can follow him on Twitter at devcareercoach. Jolt is the author of three LeanPub books, ES6 in Practice, The Complete Developer's Guide, The Developer's Edge, How to Double Your Career Speed with Soft Skills, and most recently, The Charismatic Coder, The Software Developer's Guide to Social Confidence and Emotional Freedom. In this interview, we're going to talk about Joel's background and career, his professional interests, uh, what it's like working with a publisher to create video courses, which is something I'm very interested in asking about, um, his books, and his experience self-publishing and, and being a formerly published author as well. So thank you, Joel, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their um, origin story. I know you've written a little bit about your background, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and, and what your experience was like growing up and how you eventually found your way into uh, computers and software. Yes, indeed, when we grow up, it determines what we're going to do 10, 20, 30 years later, uh, because uh, whatever we do when we are six, for instance, uh, we oftentimes make some unconscious decisions about our future uh, or about our self-worth and so on um, that determines what uh, that that determines how we are going to look at life in general and back in the days um, well my childhood i spent it in hungary uh, in a country that was originally still in the that was originally still behind the iron curtain and uh, in the early 90s, late 80s, uh, basically it became a fully independent country. Uh, and uh, we got some Western influence as well. And obviously I started uh, not only looking into some English countries, but also some uh, German. Uh, so I also had a look at some uh, like German countries, German speaking countries like Austria and Germany. In fact, I visited Austria quite often. So as a child, one of my dreams was to eventually get integrated into the German society because I was really, really um, into uh, the way how Germans express themselves. Back in the days when I was six, actually, I learned I think mid-level German, so B-level German, just from television. And it's quite interesting. I didn't have any language courses. I didn't really have anything at all, uh, just pure television. And uh, afterwards, I think first when I visited in Ger visited Germany in 2011, uh, that's when I knew that I would want to stay in Germany. And it actually happened I think two years later. Uh, back then I was already in Malta, by the way. And uh, the question how I ended up in Malta um, was very interesting as well, because uh, as a university student, I was already uh, looking for opportunities outside my country. Um, and uh, I found it back in 2009 when uh, I became a professional poker player, actually, and also an affiliate manager it's very interesting in a sense because until then i got a master's degree in it engineering and also uh, i was involved in uh, providing uh, back-end and front-end solutions for stock traders basically a stock trading educational company in hungary and um, with this shift uh, affiliate management, marketing, software engineering. Uh, I have a relatively wide uh, insight into what it takes to build a 
product that is basically bulletproof in all senses and can be sold. Um, and based on this experience, um, well, this is very far from the original growing up story, but um, based on this this experience, uh, when I ended up in Germany, indeed, as you mentioned, uh, I joined Socialmantic Labs, uh, which was a 30 people startup back in the days. And it's, it was very interesting to see this startup growing. And um, last year, it reached about 250 people. And we got another 2,500 people on top because it was purchased by another company called Dan Hamby. So out of a 30 people startup, now I'm in a 2,500 people corporation, basically in a relatively responsible position as head of front end engineering. And um, basically, uh, my day to day tasks shifted from software development to management. Uh, so basically, this is my short story, and uh, there were a lot of twists along the way, which we can elaborate later. Yes, definitely. Um, uh, thank you for that great uh, description. Um, you're, uh, I think you might be the first person I've interviewed who is from Hungary, uh, but you're not the first person I've interviewed who grew up behind the Iron Curtain. And mm -hmm. for those of our listeners who might not know what that refers to, um, the country we now called Russia used to be called the Soviet Union, and it used to yes. uh, be in control of what are now independent countries um, and living behind the, the borders of this communist entity was called living behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, for for those who might not know anything about what life was like in Hungary when you were young, can you talk a little bit about that from the perspective of politics and culture? Actually, I didn't really care about politics back in the day as a child. In fact, I can give you a funny story about politics, about how it influ how it gave me a traumatic moment in my childhood, because uh, one of my favorite cartoons back in the days was DuckTales. And we had a prime minister in 1992 who unfortunately passed away, I think it was 1993 or so. And uh, the bad news interrupted my Sunday experience of watching DuckTales. And this is this I still remember. I still remember the episode that was uh, that was interrupted. And uh, it was when uh, Uncle Scrooge, also known as Dagobert Duck in Europe, Germany and Hungary, by the way, <laughs> um, lost his uh, fortune and uh, like uh, because it's it sunk in the sea i think so uh, this was some sort of a moment this was all i observed uh, from uh, the politics and so on the russian influence was not evident for children well back then i was like uh, in 1989 i was seven year old seven years old and um, back then basically the only Russian influence was that some teachers were obliged to espionage whether any families did any suspicious activities. But in the 80s, the black car didn't come and didn't take people away to, to let's say, torture them or basically kill them and so on. Uh, some of these activities happened back in the 60s, though. So 60s, uh, 70s, not that much anymore. So uh, I was fortunate enough to be born in the 80s. And uh, basically, since the age of uh, seven, eight, I was already in a democratic uh, country. So it's 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 uh, almost equivalent to growing up in Canada, except for the lack of some resources, which was uh, more evident in Hungary than, let's say, in the United States or Canada. It's funny. Before before I go on to ask you uh, another serious question, um, I just wanted to point out something else to our listeners, which is that uh, in 1992, 
if you were watching a television show on broadcast television and it got interrupted, you might never see the ending. Um, uh, you couldn't you couldn't TVR it uh, or even necessarily ever find a recording of it that you could watch again. So I remember having similar experiences, not not interrupted by politics, but just by other things where uh, I was, you know, I, I still remember the moments when it's like, I'll never know the end of this story that I was just deeply deeply into um oh yes i did find it a few years later in german oh good fantastic so, yeah um uh so my next question is um one of the privileges of doing this podcast with lean pub authors is i get to talk to very smart people and i get to talk to very smart people from all around the world and often it's people who might have knowledge of things that the rest of us are seeing in the headlines uh, but we don't get to talk to someone with local a local understanding of um and i'm curious um so you uh grew up in hungary and you it sounds relatively early on decided that you wanted to build a career elsewhere and you've lived in germany now for some time and you lived in malta for a few mm. years is there a sense in hungary that people or is there a discourse about a kind of brain drain uh from people going to other parts of europe yes it's not only um obvious in hungary but also in uh, the surrounding countries um, which includes, let's say, I've worked with some uh, brilliant software developers from uh, Czech Republic, also from uh, Poland and Bulgaria, uh, even Slovenia. So um, it's it's quite evident that when the resources didn't align um, with uh, what people can earn elsewhere, then uh, it's uh, it, you have the freedom to choose your country. And in fact... I, have, I had a development manager back in the days who shared a story with me that uh, he earned, I think, one-fifth of the amount that the person next to him earned for the exact same job. The only, different, the only difference was that um, he chose to work uh, in Hungary after getting hired in Germany or getting hired in Switzerland and so on. So basically for the exact same job, if you get five times as much money, uh, in that case, something is really wrong. However, um, there is also an option to be freelancers, for instance, and then, then the whole world is your market. Also, if you are, for instance, um, selling uh, products uh, on the internet, that's the same story, more or less. So you can also um, sell worldwide. So uh, I think the borders right now are artificial. Uh, some of the laws uh, are gonna be uh, gonna be challenged in the coming 10 20 years because governments simply cannot keep up with the disruptive force of uh, some cutting edge organizations and uh, even if leg legislation uh, keeps up in a sense that after a one or two years lag uh, they are gonna introduce some laws to regulate some gray areas then the companies um, and even individuals already know what to do next, um, which is the next disruptive event for which the regulation has to catch up in like two, three years. Uh, before we uh, circle back to your personal career, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, what it's like being a university student in Hungary under these circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, for very different reasons, uh, the, the first university that I went to um, there was just a general sense that everybody was going to leave the the province. This was a province in the middle of Canada called Saskatchewan, simply because there were no, there were just very few professional jobs available, and so it it the ethos on campus was one of preparing a foundation for leaving. Um, is it? I mean, to to generalize, uh, is is there a similar uh, ethos at universities in Hungary now? It depends, actually, because. Um... 
once again, if you want to build a company in Hungary, for instance, for, so if you're an economic student or even a software engineer student, uh, in that case, right now, the oftentimes questioned Hungarian government, uh, the most positive aspect of the Hungarian government uh, actually is that uh, there is a very special type of uh, company formation, uh, which is that up to the income of, I think, about 40,000 euros per year, uh, you can get away with less than 10% of um, burden in terms of taxes, social security, and everything. This is a huge opportunity for uh, basically people to get started as small businesses. And for this reason, whoever are entrepreneurs and whoever uh, want to make a difference without uh, getting employed have a huge have a be have better opportunity staying in Hungary than, for example, what I have in Germany to let's say start growing a business. Um, so in this aspect, the answer is no if you want to get started as an entrepreneur. At the same time for employment, um, even though the gap, the wage gap is uh, getting smaller and smaller uh, every single year, there is still a difference between uh, basically uh, opportunities in Hungary and opportunities in Germany. I know some people from um, very prestigious companies not big four company, but uh, basically very well-known companies where uh, basically their salaries are very, very low uh, compared to some other countries. Um, they choose to stay uh, in their environment because their friends, um, their connections, everyone is there around them and they don't really want to uh, make a lifestyle, lifestyle change. Uh, for me, I figured out quite early in my life that I'm rather a world citizen. So this means that um, the more you see uh, from the globe, the better. Um, I'm still... I'm still grateful for my country, by the way, that um, I experienced that level of growing up. Uh, Hungary is in the top one third of all the countries that you can live in and you can be born. So in poker terms, I got that very good cards. And um, altogether, a lot of people just don't think about leaving, leaving their country uh, in general. And I didn't really think about leaving my country. I thought about exploring the world rather. So it's not a, it was not a moving away from motivation, but a moving towards. And it's uh, very important to frame that. So um, uh, if, you, if you, let's say, want to escape from your life, there is something wrong. Uh, it's rather uh, something motivational, aspirational that uh, you would that that's better to, um, let's say, not necessarily chase, but um, target and then enjoy the journey. And why did you decide to study IT at university? I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah, when I was around 11, I had an uncle. And uh, my uncle was an IT manager in one of the in the biggest bank of Hungary. I'm not going to say which one it is, but it's the biggest one. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's quite obvious for some people who are in the area. And uh, basically, back in the days, I figured out that he made a lot of money. He enjoyed what he was doing. He was in a lead position and he was very knowledgeable. He was one of the role models for me in this aspect. You write in your latest book, and this is the reason I bring it up, that your experience as a student was um, one of sort of very hard study and a lot of success in that, but a, at the same time, a kind of social awkwardness. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you think you, you were, in a sense, dealt, dealt those cards. Oh, yeah. So uh, back in the days, 
then uh, I think it, it depends on it depends on which school we're talking about because uh, until the age of uh, 14 I would say 14 15 16 um, I was not necessarily uh, that the best cars in terms of uh, my family because uh, basically uh, there were some uh, tragic events uh, with my mother for instance and uh, basically what happened was uh, I was somewhat weaker emotionally as a as a uh, well, lower grade school and even high school uh, student and for this reason what happened back in the days was that um, as you know children oftentimes uh, tend to find these weaknesses and exploit these weaknesses to gain let's say significance a variety and so on and uh, basically, I was the target of bullying for several years. At the same time, I also thought of myself as a victim. Uh, and the victim mentality is one of the worst things that um, that you can uh, basically be under, be influenced by. And uh, I also wrote in my book that as soon as I hit rock bottom and I told that told myself that this is not going to continue like this. Uh, within a week, basically, this bullying just ended after several years. So I think I, I got bullied for about like six to eight years in two different schools for the exact same reason in the exact same way. So this cannot be coincidental. And then within a week, basically, I got the strength to uh, basically uh, eliminate all this uh, toxicity from my life. And also, even though some people still tested um, my boundaries, I stood firm and I just didn't care. And um, before, and progress oftentimes happens when you hit rock bottom and you can, and you don't really see the way out. Um, but eventually, you figure out that there is an other choice that you can make. And the choice that I made back then is that I'm not going to stay a victim. And how? Actually, I'm curious if you don't mind talking about it. How did you start standing up for yourself? Did you? literally push people back uh not physically but um i had my ways verbally to basically whenever i got uh, let's say um bullied on in some sense i just um, i just uh, i don't know why and i don't know how exactly but i found some funny inspiration uh about uh, like, ma like making the whole thing fun and uh, I thought, hmm, he's trying it again. Yeah, this is so funny. Maybe there is some problem with his own ego. Maybe he's trying to project something um, onto me. And uh, eventually, uh, I've made made. Uh, I made sure that uh, whenever I got attacked, uh, I just um, twisted my mind. I made it even goofy, cartoonish in a sense, and I just started laughing, like literally. Uh, and they just couldn't deal with it uh, at all because um, eventually they looked really, really bad uh, eventually. And it's re really funny. Um, so um, I even made some of the bullies on some level insecure. Um, this is very much like what Jordan Peterson often calls a gotcha moment <laughs> or calls one, once a gotcha moment in, in his uh, famous interview about the gender pay gap, by the way, uh, when uh, there was a debate between equality of opportunities, which he fully signed up for, and equality of outcome. And the interviewer um, basically got... Um, he, she just couldn't couldn't really uh, find her own words in a live interview. Um, this is very much what happened. 
I wasn't planning on talking about Jordan Peterson. Um, I know. But uh, no, I'm not, I'm not complaining. I'm just sort of thinking through how I want to ask this question. Um, so I've thought a fair amount about this phenomenon. Um, one of the, and I, I only bring it up because you specifically brought up the gotcha moment. And I think the, the, the whole gotcha concept seems to be something that's very important in Jordan, Jordan Peterson's presentation of his himself and his ideas. And it's curious, I was listening to a podcast interview he did with someone called Camille Paglia. And one thing he kept doing over and over unprompted uh, was to say, and what's so sophisticated about that? If he was talking about Michel Foucault, for example. And it's just struck me because I was listening to it in order to to learn about the phenomenon that so much of what he's explicitly addressing, but what he's also personally emotionally reacting to is humiliation. And I've always, I've wondered if, and it sounds like you know a lot more about him than I do, if the there's something about the importance of the gotcha moment is related to that sense of being humiliated or insulted. Well, whenever you feel insulted, this means that um, most of the time it's it's shame. It's a shame-based thing. And shame oftentimes comes, well, most of the time comes, comes from childhood, unprocessed childhood trauma. And uh, this type of uh, thing oftentimes uh, can only be healed with uh, a therapeutic uh, process. So um, the thing is that whenever, whenever someone... Uh, gives you a blank face, for instance, and uh, cannot say really anything. Um, it can be just a puzzled mind, which is uh, which can be healthy. I get into these states quite often, even today, when there is something really, really surprising. It doesn't mean that I freeze for minutes, but at the same time, if there is something really extraordinary, really, really surprising, then um, obviously I have to re- reevaluate where I stand right now, whether there is danger, whether there is, uh, let's say, an opportunity, or I need to act, or I don't need to do anything, just observe it. Now, um, if it's uh, something where a person freezes and cannot say anything, then oftentimes it's um, some buried, repressed and suppressed shame that uh, comes from childhood issues. And uh, the fastest way to heal this and the fastest way to unlock your potential in general is through therapy. Uh, now, these kinds of insecurities are uh, basically in everyone's life. So uh, it's like, I would say... 90% of all the population at least uh, would most likely benefit from some form of uh, therapy uh, in general. So it is not that, uh, let's say, a small selection of people are special in a sense that they need to be treated because even healthy people have to have therapists themselves. Uh, when it comes to Jordan Peterson's uh, popularity, the reason why he is popular in the current um current uh, society, according to my opinion, is that um, back in the 80s and actually after the World War, you know, the baby boomer uh, population was really disciplined in a sense that they, let's say, built everything that the war destroyed. Now, uh, the second generation kept this um, wealth that uh, that the first generation built. And uh, once we come to generation by generation Z, especially, or Z, depending on the country, <laughs> uh, then, uh, then um, we see that um, we are struggling with uh, keeping this discipline, like uh, especially the, some of the youngsters uh, on some level, because there is so much 
so many opportunities, uh, so much uh, potential for pleasure uh, around us that uh, you know it's it's basically um, undebatably uh, a possible lifestyle choice to just enjoy whatever wealth is around us and just don't um, keep uh, up the discipline. And you can choose an easy life. Um, and um, in this case, you lose control over your own life. And Jordan Peterson most likely acts as a father figure for those uh, types of um, people, especially who lost control over their lives. This is why most likely his message resonates with so many people. Uh, at the same time, there is obviously um, in the 80s, most likely he wouldn't have been popular. He would have been just an ordinary person. It's uh, Thank you for that very good description. Um, that really helps me understand uh, the phenomenon better. Um, really drilling in on this this gotcha the the importance of gotcha moments though i i just i would like to ask is is the is the resonance of the gotcha moment that it's been revealed that the your the person you're talking to wasn't making genuine arguments and was really just kind of attacking you and so the gotcha moment is when the sort of artificial arbitrary rational construct falls apart and the true motivation which is an attack has been laid bare well, this is a relatively hard uh, question once again because it depends on the situation. Um, if a person feels attacked or triggered, in that case, uh, the answer oftentimes is an emotional – well, not oftentimes. It is an emotional answer which is um, justified by some fake or real rational um, argument. Now, the problem is that um, – the more a person is triggered, the less sense the rational argument um, makes in general. So in a gotcha moment where someone freezes for a short period of time or a longer period of time, um, if, if someone is really triggered, in fact, even the interviewer, she was Kathy Newport, or I, I, I forgot her name, Kathy, that I know, um, so even Cathy uh, applied vulnerability, actually, which uh, which uh, is uh, basically a sign for a relatively high self-awareness. And she admitted that uh, it was a gotcha moment for her, herself. And um, this means that, uh, you know, self-aware people admit that narcissistic people like who suffer from narcissistic personality disorder would never admit that in their lives. That's that's really interesting because it's, it's kind of... Uh... What I what I was what I was seeing in this what I see in this whole discourse of gotcha moments is actually that Jordan Peterson himself is the one who is feeling attacked, and that's what the gotcha moment reveals, and that's why he's so preoccupied with gotcha moments, and why his supporters are so preoccupied with gotcha moments because they feel mm -hmm. like particularly intellectual types that they engage with are somehow motivated to go after them, um, and so the gotcha moment is actually the Jordan Peterson person uh, revealing their own emotional attachment to what's going on in the moment. And that's why it's so important to get the other guy. Uh, yeah, that's not just a Jordan Peterson phenomenon, but basically everyone, uh, every in every movement, there are some followers who obviously misunderstand the original message. The Whenever there is a movement, the message has to be clear enough. Um, and even if it's even if it's clear, even then people will misunderstand you. And it depends what need what unmet needs uh, some people have. So, for instance, um, if you if if a person wants to feel significant by 
exerting dominance or exerting uh, the power over other people, in that case, they will chase these moments when they can get the other person to freeze, for instance, on purpose, um, because this is this is their way of this is their unhealthy way of meeting uh, their own significance this is how they feel that they they are worth of um, at least well, not necessarily love but they are worthy in general and uh, it's very interesting because if you read the book the denial of death by ernest becker uh, then you can see that all these fears and all these unmet needs uh, actually can be traced back to the fear of death um, because what happens if i'm not significant then uh, i'm most likely going to be uh, not a good part of the tribe and what happens if i'm not a good part of the tribe let's say a hundred thousand years ago um, i'll most likely reduce my chances of survival because i'm gonna stay alone and uh, eventually i'll wander alone and uh, got eaten by let's say uh, a predator and uh, why hundred thousand years ago and why not now what does it have to do with uh, modern living well obviously our biology our genetics is lagging at least 100,000 years behind, if not more. So this is why we have uh, some of these irrational fears, limiting beliefs, and so on. We can still combat them, uh, but if we don't live, don't choose a conscious life, in that case, we just live auto, we live on autopilot, and we just um, are victims on some level of some circumstances that uh, happen to us. At least this is how it appears. And in reality, there is a way out. But uh, many people never uh, even take an effort to uh, understand these forces. And they meet their significance, for instance, by trying to, you know, for example, uh, get the other person do something that uh, uh, influence or manipulate other people, which is horrible. Uh, I think we could probably talk about this for a lot longer, um, but yes. uh, we should probably circle back to uh, the uh, normal course of these interviews uh, and get back to your career. Um, you write in your LeanPub profile about how your transition from university, where you were quite successful, into your first job uh, didn't quite match what you were hoping to happen, uh, and that you this was partly the inspiration for your becoming, uh, ma making making changes in the way you approach your professional life, which you've then, then written about since. Can you talk a little bit about, about what happened there when you left university? Oh, yes. So at the university, I had an excellent uh, life, actually. I was paid to uh, write my master's thesis. I was in an EU-funded project. I was also in a Hungarian um, research-funded uh, project as well. And basically, I was writing publications. And uh, it was an excellent uh, way of living that, uh, you know, I was um, presenting these publications in uh, public, in conferences, interacting with uh, professors, uh, PhDs, uh, who are well-known people in the field of semantic web. Back in the days, that was my specialty. And uh, afterwards, I wanted to choose a way of, uh, choose a mission, rather a mission, that... Uh, that was uh, a bit closer to reality because research and semantic web in 2006 was a bit far from uh, reality in a sense that um, that we didn't really have the computational power 
to uh, use it in real life scenarios. You can see this in machine learning, for instance, with uh, neural networks and deep learning, uh, basically where only in the 2000, after 2010, we started getting the computational power to, so that this um, te technique makes sense. And uh, for this reason, I chose a field that really interested me back in the days, like uh, how financial market, how the financial markets work. And um, unfortunately, it was a small startup. They didn't really have a lot of resources. They have an, had an excellent business model for the education of um, individuals and smaller companies. But uh, the company I worked with was just a supplier for this educational company. And the success of the company I worked for um, didn't really, uh, wasn't really tied uh, into the success of the educational uh, company. And for this reason, there was no way for me to grow inside the company. Um, basically, I was in a lead position already and other people learned from me. I had to make my own research and I didn't really have many people to learn from. And uh, this is why I chose eventually to pursue some other options. And um, back in the mid-2000s, it worked in a way that if you raise in the online poker world, if you just raise your hand, just money would get stuck on it. So it was so easy. Um, back then, I think American players were still allowed to play. And uh, in the United States, it was a recreational activity to go and play poker and lose money, literally. It's equivalent to going uh, to partying or basically anything uh, along those lines. And um, basically, it was super easy for me to make, let's say, three, four, five times as much money as uh, with my regular job. So for this reason, at, uh, I think back in the days in 2008 or so, I chose to uh, become a professional um, a player and also an affiliate. And given that I had good connections uh, with some affiliate managers, uh, some people invited me to Malta. Uh, and uh, that's where I became a country manager or affiliate manager for um, one of the companies part-time. And uh, during the afternoon and the evening, uh, I played poker. It was a lot of fun. And it was also very interesting that uh, my base salary was lower than the rent itself. So I was forced to either sell uh, sell the product, um, which was a poker casino and affiliation product, or... Um, that no poker casino sports betting product or um, make a lot of money playing poker and it happened for a year but uh, near the end of uh, that year I was thinking about I'm an IT engineer I'm just wasting my potential so I got back to IT right after I found a reference somewhere online uh, in which you talked about working on the application of AI to poker strategy was this something you were working on at the time yes very much because uh, even today, it's a, it's a big problem in many poker networks. Um, I stopped playing poker, by the way, in 2012. Um, and a lot of people think that, um, you know, you get addicted by playing poker. The last thing I want is a recreational poker game, actually. I never wanted to play recreationally. But uh, at the same time, I realized that um, a lot of uh, um, poker networks are infested with uh, poker bots similarly to the trading bots. Now, the difference between online trading and online poker is that uh, poker bots are illegal. So for this reason, um, I had one of, one of my uh, poker player friends who was a professional playing, I think, 
15 to 20 tables at the same time. So it's called multi-tabling, you know. Once he got a poker bot check where he had to answer a question very fast on all his tables. And because of this poker bot check, I think he he lost like $1,000. So it's uh, very interesting because um, he bet on many tables already and a lot of money was uh, on the table, but he couldn't couldn't call the other raises, for instance, or couldn't do anything. And he just got timed out because of the the poker bot check. And it was um, a very interesting area because... uh, Poker itself is not a solvable game because it's a game of incomplete information. Uh, But as soon as you go exploitative um, in terms of your strategy and not game theory optimal, then uh, you can beat basically the opposition plus the money that's flowing out of the ecosystem through the fees for which the the poker uh, economy basically uh, organizes the game. And uh, this is what I did for a short period of time and advised some people as well on how to play correctly. Yeah, it's really it's a really interesting question. Um, this is reminding me of a conversation I had recently on this podcast with someone who um, had worked on technology to block robocalling, fraudulent robocalling. And it seems like you bring up game theory and it seems like things, you know, the very quickly in these kinds of situations turn into one where the person trying to cheat essentially uh can't look too can't be too good at what they're doing um can't be too fast can't win every game uh and you actually have to start in order to succeed you actually kind of have to look at least a little bit human yes so basically what i did uh, was not a poker bot development but rather a game analysis um software that aids human decision it's very much like uh, you know last week i went i traveled more than a thousand kilometers by car and um, i happened to rent a car that had an active lane assist uh, steering and active lane assist means that with cameras basically the car reads the lane and uh, all you need to do is just uh, keep your hands on the steering wheel and the car turns itself. Now, the situation is that um, in case there is, for example, a roadworks ahead, then uh, the lanes get confused and the cameras cannot read, read it. So in this case, you have to override the decision and take a manual decision. And what I did was um, an aiding, a decision aiding software for poker players manually which was in fact even semi-legal because it was not running on the exact same computer, but it was reading uh, some of the some of the uh, cards uh, and basically options. And uh, it was also something that you that uh, can could be used to analyze the game after the session, because I think back in uh, back in the days when I was a professional sit and go and uh, sit and go, it it means like a tournament player. Um, where there are at most 10 players, so 6 to 10 players. I was a bit ahead of the uh, well, the most advanced uh, strategies that were available back then to, to the public because I realized that the strategies that you force, that you force yourself in, into uh, a certain decision um, – you tend to you tend to lose your chips before you have to take a stance and uh, what i did was oftentimes i made a negative expect uh, so i made a decision with a negative expected 
value um, in order to avoid an even more negative expected value decision in the future, which is going to come. And uh, I didn't see any software out there that could calculate with these kinds of decisions. Um, and for this reason, I had to um, create my own strategy. And um, I think I was like very successful with it because um, in terms of uh, 45 player games, as far as I remember in 2011, my return of, on investment was uh, between 30 and 40%. And this was one of the highest back in the days on uh, 11 and 25 dollar games uh, so imagine that you let's say uh, play games worth 500 dollars in a four hour night and uh, basically you get 40 percent roi on them expected so it was a super super good opportunity uh moving towards the subject of your your book or your latest book um and your work as a career coach um one of the unofficial themes of this podcast because i interview so many people who work in IT mm -hmm. is to ask if you were yourself starting out, say you just finished high school now and you intended to become a software engineer, would you, as you are now, recommend to your, you know, 18 year old just graduated self in 2018 that you go to university to study IT formally or would you suggest another course? This is a hard question. And, uh, I would recommend uh, most likely a good university or hmm, this is a gotcha moment for me actually. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's a hard because, question. Because, uh, because I'm not, not, in, uh, not in the shoes of an 18-year-old person. So it's actually a big responsibility for me to answer, listen, don't go to university. Uh, take some courses and gather practical experience because it could work for some people. Um, at the same time, I'm very grateful for the university studies that I had, even though not all of my teachers were the greatest. There were some excellent, like really excellent professors, including my mentor and um, basically the person uh, with whom uh, I cooperated in writing uh, my master's thesis and also in the EU project. And I learned really a lot from basically many professors and even some PhD students. At the same time, um, if you read the book Anti-Fragile, for instance, um, I don't have a big hope in uh, university education if things continue in the same way as they are continuing outside the field of uh, the STEM subjects. So engineering, for instance, is still more or less protected. Um, and working with a lot of people who have a self-taught background and a university background, I would say both have advantages and disadvantages. And um, one of my colleagues uh, who is a female de developer, by the way, and uh, she plowed through all the hardship of being a self-taught developer from being a low-level junior developer initially, not low-level in terms of language, but basically doing some HTML, CSS, uh, JavaScript in terms of like creating banners, for instance, uh, to being a software engineer uh, with uh, developing client-side rich web applications, then becoming a team lead, a respectable team lead, um, and then she chose to go back to a university to study engineering, 
algorithm theory and everything that she didn't know before. And she's very happy because uh, it made her a complete um, professional and now basically she's looking for a job uh, obviously um, in a different country and um, whoever is gonna call me to give a reference I'm, I'm fully standing up that that uh, even before her university studies she could cooperate with us and now that she has this background uh, this mindset this problem-solving mindset um, it's super um, useful for her at the same time, you know, for six years, for instance, studying for six years, it's a bit too much. And there is a lot of, let's put it this way, garbage uh, that people have to go through that don't contribute uh, to your future. For me, I call this, for instance, um, electronics was something that even though it's interesting, I never used it since then. Advanced calculus, I never used it. Uh, what else? For instance, uh, so uh, hardware architecture, I learned things from the 80s that is simply not useful for me because that's not my specialization at all. Um, and if I deal with software, then I don't really want to get into the details of uh, hardware architecture. And um, if you're paying for a university uh, master's thesis, you get a complete package. And if you can make use of 40, 50% of that, you know, the rest is um, just noise. And unfortunately, um, in this aspect, the universities would have to improve their game. Otherwise, they would be eliminated sooner or later from the ecosystem. You do a lot of interviewing in your job, if I understand it correctly. Yes. Um, what proportion would you say of applicants who get through to the interview stage uh, in your work have formally studied computer science or something like that and completed a university degree? I don't have the statistics, so I don't have the stats on this. I think, given that I'm interviewing for front-end development, um, API development, mobile development mainly, so software developer jobs, my educated guess would be less than a quarter. Um, at the same time, it depends on the position because um, if there is a job where, let's say, a master's thesis is a requirement, in that case, I think at least 80% of the applicants who get interviewed have a master's thesis. By the way, um, side note, if you see that something is a requirement in a job ad, it doesn't mean that it is a requirement. Oftentimes, you can get away with uh, relaxing some of the requirements. Uh, and this is why not 100% is going to be going to have a master's thesis. Uh, it's not that much, actually, for us. Uh, you actually, that's, that's a, gives me a great opportunity. That observation gives me a great opportunity to work to move on to your book and your work on devcareermastery.com, mm -hmm. uh, where you write about all kinds of really interesting things from, you know, a, a sort of not just an insider's perspective, but someone who's devoted a lot of thought to these things about, like, how do you get a job? What does it really mean? When you, when you read a job description, how should you interview, things like that. Um, and I know that you've written uh, a few posts, I think, about how software developers should ask for raises. Uh, I don't know why, but I find the topic of asking for a raise quite fascinating. Uh, I was wondering if you could t talk just for a couple of minutes about maybe what, if you, if you could just give the best advice you could in two minutes to people out there uh, who are confused about how they might go ahead, go about asking for a raise, what would, what would you tell them to do or not do? Yeah. And the, 
and the clock is ticking, I know, <laughs> two minutes. So um, my advice would be to read those three posts on devcareermastery.com uh, because uh, there are basically nine um, steps that uh, I I think it's nine steps, yes, that um, I have uh, basically introduced you to. One of the most important things are that um, you have to make sure that your contribution matches what you're asking for. Now, this doesn't really mean that uh, you cannot get, um, let's say, more, man more money than um, what your contribution is worth on the market, because your contribution is worth on the market the exact same amount what you can get from the market. At the same time, money follows responsibility better than um, basically if you just uh, went for the highest earning ability um, all the time. So if you went for more money in every single decisions that you can possibly take, it's a greedy uh, type of uh, algorithm. It's a greedy solution. And as we know, in algorithm theory, it's a suboptimal solution most of the time. Not always, because sometimes greedy, uh, being greedy is optimal. But um, oftentimes, if you, let's say, ask for more money at an expense of burning bridges, um, then um, there is going to be friction afterwards that would uh, that would decelerate your progress. So for this reason, oftentimes when you ask for a raise, uh, it's important that uh, first you get things straight, you justify what your how, what your contribution is worth. You think in a business mindset in a sense that you either save money to the company that you're working for or you create some business opportunities, which is very hard for a software developer who is, let's say, a junior or mid-level. But um, if you, if you let's say, create a software that automate, automates the work of, let's say, two or three, uh, three other people, uh, then um, you can even measure how much money you save to the company in general. It doesn't mean that those people are going to get fired. They might get a different job where they can be more useful to the company elsewhere. So it's important uh, to know uh, what your value is in general and you maximize it. There is also an opportunity, obviously, to get an external benchmark, which means that you go out to the real world and, uh, let's say, get another offer, and you leverage that offer um, by presenting an up or out offer, to, uh, to be exact, to your managers. But what I argue in my book is that this is not the optimal solution, because oftentimes if you have a good relationship with your manager or lead, then... Um, you can make things happen with less friction, faster, and better. Um, and uh, the best example is uh, my own career where I literally 3x my salary and it's not just uh, 3xing because it's going even further um, relatively soon. So in this aspect, it's very important to, to know that uh, you're in the same boat with some other people and people who make decisions on your salary or your colleague's salary are not um, are not paying that from their own pockets but um, if if you make them successful uh, in their jobs by building uh, the by being uh, useful to the company then their interest is going to be to keep you there is obviously an exception when, uh, let's say, a person just doesn't care about you at all. In that case, I would uh, recommend changing to a different team or a different company. Um, 
just as a uh, on the side note or whatever you um you mentioned the clock ticking do you do you have another 10 or 15 minutes to chat sure okay great thank you um yeah you just reminded me there uh of the importance of uh showing someone the value of a proposal that you're making whether it's for a raise you know and or for a new project and um, someone I think who was kind of a, had some experience with middle management that I interviewed not too long ago joked about how just say the word revenue a few times uh, and you'll at least you'll at least prick the ears of the manager that you're talking to if you're proposing something. Um, but the you know the the the, the fundamental principle is uh, don't just say I deserve it. Uh, talk about what what you're planning to do and how that's going to improve things for the person you're talking to or for your your team or for your company more broadly. Um, one thing I really like about uh, your work is that you, you place an emphasis on uh, emotional intelligence and, and, and perhaps on a deeper level, just, you know, being aware of one's emotions, one's own emotions generally. And you have a neat metaphor where you talk about the good wolf and the bad wolf inside us, which really struck me, uh, and, and the importance of being careful about which wolf you're feeding. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you're, what you're getting at there. Oh, yes. Uh, most likely you've heard uh, of some uh, jokes about rabbits and bears. And, uh, this reminds me of, uh, of uh, one of them where uh, the rabbit needs a ladder. Uh, and to get that ladder uh, from the bear, uh, he wants to obviously approach him. But the problem is that the bear is not really happy uh, usually when he sees the rabbit. And uh, the rabbit is very much uncomfortable when it comes to talking to the bear. And, and so on his way, uh, he's having his doubts. Oh, this bear last time, what did he do with me? It's, uh, he's not going to give me the ladder, no chance. But anyway, I'll try. So the rabbit goes forward. He's, he sees the, the house of the bear already. But oh, this bear last time, it was so horrible with me. He's uh, an evil. He's very evil. But anyway, I need it, so let me get it. And eventually, uh, he knocks on the door of the bear. The bear opens the door. Hello, little bunny, what can I do for you? In a happy mood. And then the rabbit, angry. Fuck your fucking ladder, you fucking bear, I don't want it. <laughs> and that's basically, that's, that's the summary of, um, of what we can do to ourselves if our internal narration is off. So we have 50 to 70,000 thoughts a day in general. Most of them are unconscious. And the more awareness we get on catching some of the triggering thoughts, the better we get eventually at controlling our lives. And the more control we have over our own lives, um, the, the better we can enjoy it in general. Because just going with the flow Anything can really happen to you, and if you have no control at all, it's uh, it's basically horrible because you can two things can happen to you. You mentioned both of them basically. One of them was the victim mentality uh, that we talked about um, half an hour ago, approximately. The other one is entitlement. So if uh, someone thinks about what the company can do for you, uh, nothing. Like um, if you don't do anything, then the company is not a charity organization. There are exceptions, obviously, especially governmental organizations, but that's another story. Um, 
So if you if you first uh, want fire, for example, or warmth from a let's say a fireplace, then you have to put some wood in first. Because if you don't, then you don't. That's the thing with the good wolf and the bad wolf. So uh, the idea is that there is a good wolf and a bad wolf in us, and it's your choice which one you feed. And uh, my advice would be don't feed the bad wolf. Is an example of feeding the bad wolf, I mean, this, I'm just going to articulate something I do all the time, which is constantly being preoccupied with the worst possible outcome from something you're going to do, uh, rather than visualizing a positive outcome more often. Uh, once again, it depends because uh, being realist, being a realist and knowing every single possibility doesn't hurt. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you don't believe in yourself, uh, in general, you're not going to reach much in your career unless you're super lucky, but we're not depending on luck. Um, so uh, it's harmful to uh, put your thoughts into things that things that uh, basically you, you don't believe that you're worth something or you don't believe that you can do something. Um, because uh, in that case, uh, whether you think you can, whether you think you cannot, you're going to be right eventually. I'm not sure who said this, Henry Ford or someone, uh, but uh, there, there was a quote that sounded very much like this. Anyway, anyway, if no one said that, it's kind of smart and funny. <laughs> uh, there is also, also another aspect that is is, um, motivation motivation is a big trap because if you keep on brainwashing yourself that only good things can happen to you the universe is for you you just have to order things from the universe now, this is total bullshit on some level because if you don't do anything the universe is not going to do anything either to you this is uh, basically some esoterics and some other things some people made a fortune of spreading this advice and the reason why this advice resonated with uh, millennials especially um, is that um, basically it's very comfortable to believe that uh, that basically you can order things from the universe and you just don't have to do anything in your life. Um, so motivation is a trap in general because um, if you rely or motivation if you rely on motivation it becomes a drug and uh, if you have to go back to your motivation drug every single week or day then uh, you're not going to get the results you're just going to waste your time uh, it's important to align in general on what you want and have a clear vision but then action and execution is everything you just reminded me of something i read i think on devcareermastery.com uh, that surprised me in the context which was that you you talk about the importance of doing effective work without using productivity techniques uh, if you recall writing that, um, uh, can you can you talk a little bit about what you mean there? Why why shouldn't people use productivity techniques as the sort of foundation for effective work? Uh, actually, I don't believe that you shouldn't use productivity techniques because I use some productivity techniques myself, myself, including the Pomodoro technique, for instance. Um, the point of that article was rather that uh, there are some productivity techniques that are harmful for you if you just execute the techniques for the sake of executing them without adding any benefit to your life. In this context, um, the, uh, you are not for the productivity technique, for the execution of the productivity technique. The technique should aid your um, progress. And uh, there is a difference between being productive, being efficient, and being effective. And uh, my argument was that productivity is not enough. 
because if you if you are productive then uh, the problem is that if you are productive on something that doesn't matter from the perspective of your life you're not going to achieve anything for instance um, if you are productive at uh, let's say making coffee at work and you give everyone coffee even though they don't ask for it you're not gonna be a software engineer who's gonna bring value to the company this is an exaggerated example but some people shape their, their identity that they are the um, let's say the the hero of the coffee break I have heard of that before um, so uh, effective work is when you use your resources in an optimal way but you if you are effective at something that doesn't matter for your future once again what's the point you're just executing something because you have a habit of executing it this is very much like uh, refactoring over refactoring over refactoring all the time uh, because you have a new idea you know in javascript for example there was a huge churn rate so there was knockout js there was backbone js there was marionet.js there was react then there was redux oh no there is also angular Oh, by the way, there's this woo, this is an excellent thing as well. And if you keep on jumping to the newest shiny marble and you keep on rewriting your application all the time, then um, your company is going to be in trouble, right? Uh, so this is basically, you can be very productive and you can be very effective, uh, no, sorry, very efficient, but this is not going to be an effective work. Effective means that it's going to create the results. So what is the most important task right now that makes the biggest difference in my life? This is the number one thing. And then if you do it in a productive way, even better. So I don't have a problem with productivity, but it's not the outcome. It's just a tool. Um, I'd like to read my favorite line from your book. But before I do that, I want to preface this by saying um, the book is very charming um, and uh, full of humor and uh, forthrightness. So this, I'm not saying this to sort of imply that there's a, there's a darkness to the book. It's, it's more like a kind of briskness, I would say, like a you know, bucket of cold water when you've been sort of maybe thinking fuzzily. But uh, so just with that preface, my favorite line was, back then I didn't realize that one day I would be dead. Um, and you, you, brought up, you brought up death earlier, and I was wondering if you could just ex expand on this a little bit about how, how important is it to reflect sometimes on this, this ultimate outcome of our lives? Yeah, I'm glad that this is not uh, some kind of darkness. I mean, I was I was entertaining the idea of writing the Fifty Shades of Jolt, but that's not necessarily the context in which I want to become famous. Uh, so um, one day, actually, all of us are going to be dead. And uh, this is why it's important what you do today, because uh, there might be no tomorrow. Uh, and there might be one day, for example, that uh, you look back at your life and you think that uh, basically you could have done something that you may be postponing right now or procrastinating. Uh, for instance, I have... Uh, I have seen on YouTube once there there was there was a there was a, a video where hundred um, year old uh, people summarized and gave advice to uh, youngsters, and most of the, most of the advice was about was not about what they did uh, that hurt them, but what they didn't do, and uh, this is why it's important to live life every single day in a way that um, if you don't live to the fullest, then uh, basically 
what's the point? You're going to regret it one day anyway. Yeah, that reminds me. Um, I came across a similar study, I think, of uh, which involved talking to people sort of at, at, well, actually, this was people in palliative care, I think. So people who weren't necessarily 100 very old, but who knew they were about to die. Uh, and consistently, th those who had children, had had children, said that their biggest regret was not spending more time with their families. Yes, because of, um, you know, when we born, uh, when we are born, like let's say at the age of uh, two, this is when a child realizes that uh, they cannot do anything unconditionally. For example, um, you uh, cannot be loud in certain environments. Um, you have to go to the toilet if you have some sort of an urge uh, and so on. And uh, for this re for this reason, uh, it's a big traumatic event for children. This is why I said uh, everyone, most people have some therapeutic issues because a two-year-old child doesn't think that it, there is a problem with his or her behavior. A two-year-old child simply thinks that there is a problem with themselves. And um, this is an identity crisis on some level. And for this reason, uh, children develop some coping strategies. And uh, even though some coping strategies, for example, the rebelling or um, retreating, so being a recluse or a hermit, uh, is uh, something that doesn't res resonate with spending more time with our children, uh, the, actually the coping strategy that uh, determined my childhood was uh, becoming an achiever. And an achiever basically studies like crazy and uh, make sure that uh, they meet every expectation so that uh, they go forward in life. Many software engineers like that, actually. Many software engineers are like that. And um, an achiever uh, oftentimes get caught up in work or basically um, operating in a rat race as basically a rat or basically some sort of an animal. And uh, basically, you choose your own punishment um, in a sense that uh, you, cha you uh, change your, let's say, your uh, metal cage to a golden cage when you get a better job. But if you, let's say, get a better job at a consulting company uh, where you have to put in 14 hours a day, and uh, then a few years later, you figure out yeah, that your child has uh, no idea what your name is. <laughs> Well, not even father or not even like dad or something, uh, then um, there is a, a big problem. And the achiever basically just keeps on um, repeating his mental program or his or her mental program of um, achieving and trying to get the love of their parents, even though they are like 30 or 40 years old. And this is why there are some uh, people, I think Brian Tracy causes eight type people, so the eight type like achiever, like kind of obvious, uh, who just uh, keep on keep on achieving without living. Moving on to the final part of the interview, um, I wanted to ask you about. I'll, I'll be asking you about your writing, um, but I also wanted to ask you about your experience making video courses. Um, this is something that is becoming more and more popular for for people such as yourselves who are who are authors who are writing about uh, things like career development and um, but also you know software books and other types of kind of training content um, how did you get involved in, in creating video courses particularly with with pact oh yeah by the time I got started with pact I already 
um, created a video course on JavaScript. In fact, it's even uh, on LeanPub. So if you select the video course edition, there is also, um, I think, 700 megabytes of videos um, added. So I think it's four hours, almost four hours of um, JavaScript videos. And um, originally, I wanted to get started with screencasts because uh, I, did, I had no idea how to set up the equipment um, to uh, create live video courses. Also, back then, I didn't uh, get started with method acting lessons that have been really helpful for me. Uh, method acting is basically the type of acting that uh, some people like Marlon Brando used, and uh, you use your own emotions uh, to play a role. Uh, basically, that comes with uh, some emotional freedom um, and also a higher expressive power. Now, uh, I was always interested in uh, creating some video courses and uh, even some entertaining and compact content. And um, I found that I could keep the attention of uh, my audience a bit better with some engaging uh, video content. Now, my development is very obvious because let's say what I did two years ago has really nothing to do with what I'm doing right now in terms of emotional freedom, for instance. So in my first videos, I even read basically my book uh, content uh, adding some additional explanation and some other twist uh, twist to it and illustrating it on screen uh, with some examples. Um, but later, as I got better and better um, with packed publishing and also without packed publishing, um, I created uh, some courses, YouTube content, uh, and so on. And uh, it, it became some sort of a hobby for me. Now, with packed publishing, it's a bit different because uh, you have no control over the process and eventually in the editing um, my funniest story about uh, about uh, an editing mistake was that uh, i got an excel sheet uh, from uh, someone who had no technical competence that there is an interlacing error in my recorded video and it and uh, i got let got around like uh, 10 20 occurrences in a video where i had to fix an interlacing error and it turned out that the interlacing error was the 80 character ruler of my text editor <laughs> because they thought that there is a line that was that didn't belong there and eventually it was just a tool for software developers to write code that fits in 80 characters <laughs> it was kind of funny uh, so in this sense there is some uh, random noise and they also edited edited the videos in a way that uh, I had no control over so uh, unfortunately this is gonna be my last course so my last uh, pack publishing course uh, on artificial intelligence that I'm uh, working on right now beginner AI with Python and then I will mostly create self-published courses um, Possibly on LeanPub, there are basically many opportunities. I can even self-host it on WordPress. There are um, quite quite a lot of lot of options for that. Um, and uh, getting back to this popularity of uh, like courses in JavaScript, my first book was ES6 in practice. Um, it was really. Um, stunning for me like uh, how popular it became so basically i got better um i got a better deal at self-publishing the book than writing any um writing it with any publishers let alone had i known how to market it uh, it would have been even better <laughs> and um, basically i got continuous feedback from the video course 
And one of the feedback was actually that uh, it is not a beginner's content. So for this reason, uh, what I'm doing right now is uh, I created a book, uh, which is going to be free, by the way, just the book is free because I believe that information itself without exercises or anything, um, it's fine if it is free. And then the added value is understanding uh, through examples, explanations, and so on. And the book is called A Practical Introduction to Modern JavaScript. I'm going to publish it relatively soon. It's interesting that um, I only created the uh, cover and uh, like 20, 30 pages of content uh, without making it accessible at all. And I already got some um, feedback on how much money they would spend on the book. So I think I got something like uh, even like $10, even more possibly. Um, so the limpa process of not publishing the book, but just putting a cover out there and uh, sending it out to your email list really works um, in a sense that uh, you get some feedback on how many people would uh, be interested in, in a book. So this is a really helpful feature. Yes, thanks for that very great description of, of your experience making video courses and courses and books and things like that. This is, this for those listening, this is the part of the, we leave it till the end because this is the part of the interview where we, where we get into the sort of weeds of the kinds of decisions that one needs to make when one um, self-publishes uh, content. Uh, but you mentioned, you know, the some of the, the value in, in, in making the price for something be free. Um, one of the most successful books on LeanPub in terms of revenue that it's earned actually has a free minimum price. And this is something that I think people who are familiar with LeanPub uh, aren't surprised by, but people who aren't familiar with it are often surprised by. Um, and there are actually, we've encountered people who have seen value in having a free minimum price for their work uh, in, in a number of different ways over the years. Um, one, one person, for example, had been part of a scientific team that had had uh, public funding from the American government, and so they weren't allowed to sell uh, their book for money. Um, we've also had, we, we LeanPub recently sort of launched our, our courses feature um, through a, a partnership with Johns Hopkins University, and they've made this course set on data science uh, that has a free minimum price and a $300 suggested price, uh, which is a really interesting experiment. But they're, what they're partly up to is they actually want, they see themselves as playing a role in changing the world by introducing more people to data science techniques. Um, and so for them to make the minimum price free is actually a really important part of what they're trying to achieve. At the same time, they know there are a lot of companies out there that actually often prefer to pay for training material. Um, and so, you know, they, that's why they have this sort of relatively high price that you can pay for the entire course set if you want to. But at the same time, they also have a free option. Yeah, that's... Um... Absolutely fair, because uh, not everyone would choose to pay uh, for content right away, uh, obviously. And what I saw is that uh, this is where the world is moving towards, that uh, even 90% of what you do is free. And... Um, the last the last 10% is going to be um, something that people pay for, not because they desperately need the organized content, but because they value the work and the changes that already happened uh, so much. So basically for me, um, the way how I view this is that I'm not in the information business when writing a book, for instance, because information is normally free. I'm rather in the transformation 
business, meaning that I want to make changes in other people's lives for the better, obviously. And uh, this happens through inspiration. And if you have no idea what I do or who I am, in that case, you're not going to trust um, in the quality of uh, either advice or explanations or examples or exercises that um, that my book can offer or my course can offer. And this this is with everyone. Otherwise, you can go to simply uh, go and do the Udemy model, which basically decreased the prices of um, of many even flagship courses of very popular people. So, for instance, what I saw is uh, I was funnel hacking uh, a very popular person called Brian Tracy not too long ago uh, to see how he is um, selling his self-publishing toolkit with some webinars and some other things. And what I noticed is that there was a hack there was a hack placed in the in the process that earlier he sold his content for five hundred dollars. Now he can only get away with three hundred dollars. And the depreciation of video content, thanks to the Udemy effect, by the way, that you have, let's say, 50,000 courses that you can buy, usually for $200, but just today it's going to be $10.99. Um, it's uh, basically uh, making, informa- not information, but video courses that don't transform your life, but just present some information and some entertainment a lot cheaper than before. And for this reason, you can do two things. One is that you make um, some of the some, some of your content free, and uh, basically make sure that whoever wants to read your content for free, fine, you're happy that uh, you could help them, uh, and uh, basically the premium product offers some premium value on top, which is not available everywhere else. So uh, this is where most of the most of the successful authors go towards. And um, I've seen some uh, very successful people still today selling courses for thousands of dollars. So this exists still today and they make changes, make real changes in other people's lives as well. Um, on the topic of transformation, that gives me an opportunity to uh, move on to my final question, uh, which is always um, if there was anything we could do to improve LeanPub, say one feature we could build or one bug we could fix, what would you ask us to do for you? Hmm, uh, quite a... So basically, if you give me the opportunity to uh, ask for features, uh, I'm quite creative in this sense, so there is quite a lot. Let me choose one. Um, One feature would be um, in the course area, definitely, because... uh, Books are quite slick and solid, uh, actually. So in the in the course area, I would um, encourage some more interactivity um, and uh, moving uh, towards the way that it's not just not just uh, like content and examples and code and so on and possibly some multiple choice questions, but also code examples for which you can, uh, let's say, specify acceptance criteria in the form of some automated tests in some languages. I can see some, uh, basically, course platforms moving in this direction, um, but this is a hard work, actually, and I'm not sure that this would be your next step right now because there might be some uh, bigger pain points right now for some authors. So this is some on some level some luxury yeah, thank you for that that really good suggestion. Um, 
we we kind of like working on hard problems <laughs> maybe maybe a little bit too much it's just kind of in our in our dna to to do that kind of thing and there actually are some pretty sophisticated things mm. going on with our courses partly because of this this team from Johns Hopkins University sort of had run a very successful MOOC with millions of students in the past and so they were quite quite ahead of the game technologically or at least with respect to an understanding of the requirements um but yeah yes. well then the sorry go ahead oh Thank you. So then, then the question is that, you know, you're working on hard things. That's very much appreciated. And um, I would love to see some of these hard things on the platform. At the same time, if, if uh, let's say, authors um, have bigger pain points or actually the customers have uh, other needs, in that case, um, obviously, if you choose uh, basically the hard things and it doesn't sell, you go bankrupt and that no one wants that. We don't want that either. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, and we—I should—I should say I, I, I sort of meant that in a self-deprecating way. We, what I mean is, we, we, we have to push. We, we do do this all the time, but we always have to sort of give ourselves a little bit of a nudge to, to fix the more mundane problems, um, and uh, we do that primarily by well doing doing interviews like this and asking people direct questions, but also by paying uh, detailed attention to every interaction we have with customers uh, and both readers and authors, because I mean this isn't a. a, a an original observation, but it's by paying close attention to what people are contacting you about and, and including what they're not saying um, that you that you help improve things. And it, it, in the end, it does come down to the details, uh, whether you succeed for the customer and for yourself or not. Um, well, thank you very much, uh, Zolt, for taking the time to do this interview. Um, I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for being a Lean Pub author. Oh, thank you very much, Len, for having me. Uh, and uh, I wish you uh, best of success for a future of LeanPub because I would like to keep my books and courses in there. <laughs> Thanks.